Do you believe what you just sang? I don't think you believe it. Do you believe what you just sang? Amen. Amen. You'll find, um, especially if you're first time here, that um, there are cards in front of you, little welcome cards, and I'd love for you to fill those out and just drop them in the offering box on your way out when you leave later today. Also, let me remind you that the back of those cards are there for you also for putting down prayer requests. If you'd like to leave any requests for us for the prayer team, um, we send those on to uh, the people that have signed up on the internet under Larry Conover, and he distributes those prayer requests that we can pray for you throughout the week. Um, Things like new babies being born and brought into the world. It's very cool. I know you guys are talking, didn't hear what I said, but we're talking about praying for your kids. It's okay. It's very wonderful. We're thrilled to have a new member of of New Hope. Um, I would like to start off by reading to you from Matthew chapter 28. God just really impressed this upon my heart when uh, we were singing that last song. wasn't intending to do this, but I think it's appropriate. But the eleven disciples preside, this is Matthew 28:16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." We in the church have settled for making disciples of one individual. Jesus said, make disciples of nations. Carve off whole people groups. It's not too big of a thing to think of a city like Lansing with a population of a quarter million plus being turned to God because he said you should do this. Not just individuals. We do it one-on-one. But whole people groups, nations, people realms. Is that too big of a vision for you? A 54-year-old man walks into the office of the president of a corporation. He's the senior vice president. It's 1966. And he says to the president of the corporation, I know that I'm in line for your job. I know that when you retire, your position will be my position. But I believe God is calling me to do something different with my life. And so he walks away from a huge salary. He walks away from his home in Gross Point. And his friends sign him up for an interview with a psychologist. They think he's crazy. Louisa Smiley and Nellie Saunders. It's 1895. In 1895, Louisa and Annie, they live in opposite ends of the world. Annie lives in Ireland, the daughter of a very prominent family. Louisa lives in Australia, Sydney, the daughter of a very, very wealthy family. 
their paths cross when they meet in China, in the Hunan province. They decide that God has called them to something different than the secure family life that was entrusted to them because of their birth. A 46-year-old man in a very comfortable corporate position says to those above him, I can't tell you what God's going to do with me next, but I believe he wants me to move on from where I'm at. I can't even tell my friends what's next. But God has something different in mind. What do all four of these people have in common? We'll come back to them in just a minute. I want to share with you a verse that burns in my heart on a regular basis. It's from the book of Revelation. It's not where we're studying today, but it sets the context. It's Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. In other words, Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. That's what he's saying. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That wasn't written to the church at Laodicea. That was written to the pastor. The pastor had apparently produced a complacent church. I don't ever want to be part of a complacent church. I want to be pushing the boundaries of what God intends to do with his kingdom. With all that in mind, I'm going to ask you this question. Because of your presence in this room this morning, because of your participation in New Hope Church, what has God impassioned you to do? Certainly more than just attending. What has God called you to do for the next stage of your life? Whether you're 88 years old or 8 years old. What did God impassion you to do? A year ago at this time, a very well-meaning friend of mine called me and said, I hear what's going on at New Hope and I think I have something for you that you could use. I said, what is that? He said, I've got this box, and it's called Church in a Box. It's a church planter's kit. As graciously as I could, I said, no, I don't think so. I don't want to be part of something that's a duplication of what other people have done. If God's going to do this, he's going to do a new thing. So we don't need a church in a box. I have to ask myself this question. Did Jesus endure the agony of the cross just to keep us safe so that we could do things in a safe box? Or did he endure the agony of the cross to push the boundaries, to go beyond the frontiers? It wasn't just to make us safe. We're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 11. If you brought your Bible with you, great, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, they're in the pew racks in front of you. Do you know that in this last year, we've given away over 80 Bibles in this church? 
Those Bibles are there for you to take if you don't have a Bible. So feel free to take one of those Bibles with you if you need one. Matthew chapter 11. In the setup to this study this morning, I want you to understand there is a rising tide of opposition to Jesus at this point in his ministry. They all anticipate him to be the Messiah, the King. But what he's doing is not in a manner in which they were expecting. As a matter of fact, he's bringing a whole lot of blessing to people. But he isn't doing any overthrowing. He isn't ruling. And they anticipated a Messiah, a king, who was going to rule and drive out the Romans. So with that in mind, we enter into Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1. Verse 2, excuse me. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word kingdom used in this context is speaking of an overwhelming dynamic force. And so it's logical that the people who were thinking that the kingdom is near... The kingdom of God is coming. Is going to be this powerful, overwhelming force that will drive out the Romans and reestablish Israel. Think of King Arthur and his reign. He ruled with iron fist authority. A negative context, think of Saddam Hussein. Not put in a kingly role, but had the authority with overwhelming dynamic force. That's why people are confused when they think of Great Britain. Because the royal family in Great Britain doesn't really have ruling authority or power. It's been entrusted into the house of the lords, the commons. We have here an example of people anticipating a kingdom that would reign with dynamic power. In the first century, there was very little agreement among the Jews about what the kingdom would look like. One popular assumption is that when the Messiah arrived... 
that he would come in with such power and authority that they would restore the kingdom as it was known under Solomon and under David, a force to be dealt with. So there was anticipation that Jesus was going to be a military leader. Now when you see kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, keep this in mind, it's speaking of the same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. It's just the, the writer's preference to change that out. John preached the kingdom is near, that it's coming. Jesus preached, it's here. This is the kingdom. Look at Matthew 4 with me as it appears upon the screen. This is one year previous to what we just read. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. All the way down to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here it is. Now, the there's many different type of kingdoms. And it's one of the reasons I encourage you to go to Ron's class in a couple weeks when it starts. There's the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. There's the kingdom of heaven in which it was established when Jesus appeared on earth. There's multiple layers of the kingdom of heaven. And going through that four-week class will help you to understand that more if you're interested in going a little bit deeper on that. The kingdom that will come at the end of the age when Jesus returns in the second coming will be the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the 1,000-year reign. But the terminology that John was using, the kingdom is near, this is the military kingdom. And so there was enormous excitement around this. People thought, this guy, he can raise the dead. Imagine what kind of a military leader he can be. He can restore lepers. He can bring back eyesight. This is a man to get behind. This is a powerful force. So with all that in mind, look at Matthew 3.5 as it appears on the screen. We looked at this three weeks ago. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. This is speaking of John the Baptist's ministry as he's saying the kingdom is approaching the kingdom is almost here. And the entire population of Israel was coming out to hear about the arrival of the kingdom. But then it didn't come. And it didn't come. And it didn't come. And John's been arrested. And he's been put in prison. And he's there not one day, not one week, not one month. He's there for a whole year, sitting in a pit. And he sends some messengers. And that's what you're reading in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Josephus is a historian who lived at this time, and he wrote about John's imprisonment. This is what we would consider an extra-biblical source outside of the Bible. As a historian who was not a follower of Christ, and he wrote about John the Baptist. Let's see that picture of Macarius. This is what remains of the prison today. If you went to the Holy Lands, Behind that, that blue body of water, is the Dead Sea. This is an incredibly barren area. And there was a fortress that was built called Macarus. 
And that's where John was deposited. Now, in a Roman prison, don't think of the prisons like we have today, nor were they for the purposes of our prisons today. Our prisons are for the purpose of confinement, to serve out a penalty. Their prisons, they were used as a holding pen to keep people locked up until they would execute them. Once you got in, there was no getting out unless you were carried out. A modern interpretation from a historian that I read described this particular prison in this way. The room that John was deposited into was 12 feet wide by 22 feet long with 6 foot high ceilings. He was lowered through a 12 foot hole in the ground into this chamber that they had built as a cavern into the pit of the earth. It was wet, dank, damp, dark all the time. They lowered their food to them down a rope and brought it back out the same way. Would you give up hope in a situation like that? Would you not say, Jesus, are you going to get me out of here? This is not what I intended. This is not what I signed up for. I thought this was going to be a military kingdom. Now, this is not to disparage John the Baptist, but he was human just like us. And they were anticipating a messianic kingdom. Now, John asked his question in code. There's a certain phraseology that he used when he stated it. He said, are you the one who is to come? Had they asked Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? He wouldn't have been able to answer them because he didn't want people to know at this point that he was the Messiah. He was trying to hide it from people. As a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew 9.30, and their eyes were opened. Can we see that verse up there? And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. This is a time when Jesus was healing some blind people. And when he healed them, he said, don't tell anybody. Sternly warned them. I don't want people to know who I am. Jesus was trying to hide it. So when the disciples of John came to him, they were doing this in a way that was cloaked, a code. Are you the one who is to come? Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, when John, in prison, heard, way down in the pit, down in the cavern, he's been there a year, and guards are still letting him know about this Jesus, this one who's performing the works. This is the same one that he baptized. And he asked this question, Jesus, are you Jojercomomeos? Jesus, are you the coming one? That phrase is the exact same phrase that John used way back in Matthew chapter 3. Do you know that when he baptized Jesus, these are the phrases he used, Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who Hercomos is coming after me is mightier than me. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's asking Jesus if he's the one. What drives you to the point where you've given up so much hope that you begin doubting yourself? Asking Jesus if he was the Messiah. If you remember the story about John at all, 
when his mother Elizabeth was carrying him in her womb and Mary came into her presence, the baby leaped for joy. You understand that he understood from the womb who Jesus was? And on the shore of the Jordan River, he understood who Jesus was? And now in prison, he's saying, are you really who I thought you were? What's driving this crisis of belief? Every one of us come to it at some point. Every one of us enter into a crisis of belief. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus answers him back in code. Let me show you how. In Isaiah, there's six signs that are to reveal the coming Messiah, that the kingdom of God would arrive. The six signs that Isaiah referred to are, he will make the blind see, Isaiah 29. He will make the lame walk, Isaiah 35. He will cleanse lepers, Isaiah 61. He will make the deaf hear, Isaiah 29. He will raise the dead, Isaiah 11.1. He will bring... Hope to the poor, Isaiah 61.1. And Jesus has said, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. John, do you get the code? I'm the Messiah. Do you have ears to hear? Are you following this? Jesus is the hohercomenos. I am the one. That's what he's declaring. And then he takes it, a warning for each of us. One step further. He doesn't just validate who he is. He said, Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. The NIV renders it more accurately. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. See, miracles themselves were not irrefutable proof. It was necessary for John to know that the scriptures of the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before, authenticated that Jesus was who he said he was. Verse 7. As these, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Did you just come out for a show? Did you just come out for entertainment? Or did you come out to see a real live prophet of God? one that had not existed in 400 years. Jesus is saying, he doesn't wear soft clothes. He's not like King Herod who stuck John in prison. He's not one who lives in a palace. And it's not a reed shaken by the wind. This is a man who's very determined, and it's not arising a question from personal weakness. There's no personal weakness here. He's confused about the mission of Jesus. Jesus. 
And I have to ask myself, if John, who knew all that he knew about the Old Testament, who baptized tens of thousands of people on behalf of the kingdom, if he can have Jesus' questions, questions about what God has called him to do, doesn't that stand to reason that you're going to have questions? It does. It stands to reason that it doesn't make sense when God taps us and says, I want you to do this, that we may not have all our little ducks in a row before we step out and do it. There may be a lot of questions. And Jesus doesn't necessarily give all the answers. One thing he does that's very interesting here is Jesus confirms the crowd's judgment about who John is, but then he steps beyond that. He said, John was not just a prophet. He was more than a prophet. How so? Was there any other prophet in the Old Testament who stood up and said, there's one coming, oh, there he is, I actually see him. That's why Jesus said John is greater than all the other prophets because he actually pointed to Jesus and said, this one, this one is the promised one. But then he makes an interesting statement. He says that we in this room are greater than John. And I don't know if you have problems justifying that in your mind. Anybody here feel like they're greater than John the Baptist? Just take a poll. No one? You might after you understand what Jesus was saying. I struggled with this one too. I tried to understand how could we be greater than John? Look at it in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here's why. You live in a day and age when you can point to Jesus emphatically. No questions in your mind. Under the authority of Scripture, under your understanding of history, under everything that unfolded at the consummation of the ages, everything points to Jesus. And you are greater than John because John didn't even get to live to see Jesus' kingdom established. John was put to death shortly after this. He didn't see the resurrection or the crucifixion. You read about it. You understand it. You are greater than John the Baptist because you've been given a role. You may be the least in the kingdom, but you have a greater responsibility a responsibility that transcends time before Jesus' arrival. You are greater than John because you have the privilege and the honor of understanding specifically who Jesus was. And with that privilege comes responsibility to tell people. Do you get it? Do you understand that's what Jesus is saying? We're living after the events, after the kingdom was actually inaugurated. And we get to point back to it and say, here's the real deal. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if, are you, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom has been advancing with magnificent power and energy. And Jesus is saying, this is not for the weak of heart. This is a forceful time because there's forceful men who lay hold of it and try and destroy the kingdom. But it keeps moving ahead. Simultaneous with the advancement of the kingdom are the attacks on the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you better be ready, you better be prepared, because there's people who will try and attack the kingdom. There are individuals through whom Satan works to destroy the work of God. Lest you think you're exempt from it, read along with me as I read to you Matthew chapter 10. This happened in one chapter just before Jesus sent the disciples out. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Dropping all the way down to verse 17. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. From that time forward, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. A 54-year-old man walks into the office of the president of the corporation of a Fortune 500 company. And in the 1960s, he's making an excess of a six-figure salary. Times are prosperous. He has every reason to stay, except for God tugging at his heart, saying, Maury Carlson, I want you to establish a work for underprivileged children. And so Maury sells everything he has, including his two nice cars and his home in Gross Point, and buys a mobile home in Rives Junction and starts a ministry for underprivileged children that today has seen over 130,000 children understand the Word of God firsthand. Kids who would have never in any other way heard of the story of Jesus. 54-year-old man, boldly advancing the kingdom. Louisa, that I told you about earlier, from Ireland. Annie, from Australia. 1895, had no idea when they walked away from their family fortune and met in China in 1895 that they would be stepping into the midst of the Boxer Rebellion. 
And while they proclaimed the word of God among other missionaries there, within a year of their arrival, they were massacred by the revolting Chinese. Did they any less miss the call of God on their life? Or did they step beyond the frontiers of the safety box of the church and say, God, I believe you've called me to do more with my life. The 46-year-old man I speak of is myself. In stepping away from a comfortable position that I had at Trinity and telling the congregation in January of 2006, I have no idea what God is calling me to next. If I did, I would tell you. And I don't know how he's going to provide for my family for the next year, two years, or five years. But I know that he's been faithful in my life in the past. And I believe he's called me to something else, bigger than what I understand. So I wrote a letter to the elders and said, it's time for me to be done in this comfortable position and find out what else is next. So a year ago, when I was invited to do this launch of a brand new church, the name New Hope was no coincidence. Matter of fact, my wife kept pressing upon me to say, we need to use that name, New Hope, because God has an intention to give new hope to not just Hazlitt, not just the region around East Lansing and Okemos. God wants to give his hope to the greater Lansing area. Is your vision big enough for that? If this is what he's done in a year, what does he intend to do in the next five years? And what role will you play in that? You personally. What has God impassioned you to do? You will reach a crisis of belief. You will reach that moment like John saying, is this what I'm really supposed to be doing? See, John's head was on the line. He was going to die. And so he asked a hard question. If at this stage you're ready to ask God that question, and that's a dangerous question to ask, God, what do you want me to do with my life? He will call you on it. So be prepared to respond. This last year has been a wonderful adventure. I can't many times say, I'd like to do a year over again. I'd love to do this year over again. This has been fun, but I look forward to what is next. I hope you do too. I hope you look forward to it with courage and with boldness as we learn together, as we love together, as we worship together, and as we pray together. Do you believe God for that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, many of us in this room would love to have the courage that John had to yell to the masses that they were a brood of sinners and that they needed to repent and turn. But we fall far short of that, and we need your courage, and we need your boldness. There are things you're calling us to, Father, that perhaps we've hardened our ears to, and we just would take a moment and repent of that. God, I ask that you would work in hearts here who have turned a blind eye to you or who have closed off their hearing, saying, not now. 
God, if you're calling us, that's the moment you want us to respond. I pray, Father, for the women and the men, the children in this room, that you would do an incredible work in their lives, that you would use them in ways that they never understood before that were possible. As you continue to bring new people to the church, Father, people we've never met, God, make us gracious and loving. Help us to be bold, to advance your kingdom. God, help us to lay hold of it. We pray for all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.